0: Good morning, everybody. Happy February. Happy Super Bowl Sunday if you're into that. Who else is planning on watching the Super Bowl today? Quite a few people, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not super knowledgeable about football, don't follow it super closely, but Super Bowl is always a fun time to, it's kind of an excuse to get together with friends and neighbors and have snacks and watch the commercials, and it is it is fun. Uh, and I'm happy to say that this is actually the correct slide this morning. Um, this morning was uh, went a little more smoothly than last week, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing to look at the life of David uh, working through 1 Samuel. I'm going to get right into it, because last Last week, the message was a little on the shorter end, and I'm more than made up for it with, with this one. So, um, But I, I'm, excited. I'm excited for this part of the story, uh, because it's really one of the most, if not the most, iconic part of David's story. And I think really one of the most iconic stories in the whole Bible. And it's a story probably that many of you are pretty familiar with, David and Goliath. So I've I've even heard references to David and Goliath in you know, secular context. It's one of those uh, stories. Those names, David and Goliath, have had a, a lasting cultural impact just because of how powerful this story is. It's it's as big culturally as you know some of the the legends and myths that are passed down over the ages. But of course, the difference here is that the Book of Samuel. It's not a book of of myths or legends, right? We believe this to be an accurate historical tradition, not mythological tradition. And to me, that makes it all the more exciting to look at. So last week we read through some of the events leading up to here, and I started first by going back to the very beginning of the book and Samuel's origins, and we were reminded of Hannah's poem to bring up those three key themes that we found in that poem that then kind of set up the rest of the book and what we're going to be looking at. Um, Through that framework. So I want to bring those themes back up just to refresh your memory and also because I actually have the slide for it this time So I was excited to use it. Uh, So the first one was that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble secondly that God is at work in the midst of human depravity and then finally it's that that hope in God's promise to raise up a messianic king So again, keep these three things in mind as we work through the story today, Uh, and if you know anything about this story, uh, you know it's going to be an excellent illustration of that first point, and that's what we're going to be focusing on most heavily uh, today. So just a quick recap, once we did get to chapter 16 in Samuel, we were introduced to David as the youngest son of Jesse from Bethlehem. He was assigned to the really the lowly duty of taking care of his father's sheep and goats and out of him and seven other brothers so eight in total he was the last one anyone expected God to choose as the next king of Israel but God had the prophet Samuel anoint David officially choosing him then by divine appointment And in doing so, through that process, taught Samuel a lesson that was stated so clearly and succinctly in verse 7. It said, But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see what man sees. For a man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart." And that's in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. And the first half of that verse is specific, really, to that situation. But then the second sentence is just a theological a truth, a constant that God was teaching through that situation. So then, meanwhile, we cut away to Saul, who was still king and had no idea that Samuel had anointed David, this, other, this kid from Bethlehem. But he was, he was tormented with depression, anger, fear. So one of Saul's servants, or some of his servants, suggested that he bring in someone who could play music for him to soothe his spirits. And Saul said that was a good idea. So he said, go find me someone who can do that. And so they did, and who did they bring in but David, which is just so ironic, because it's this guy who's supposed to take Saul's throne. But Saul didn't know that, and in fact really takes a liking to David, because his music does relieve Saul's anxiety. So Saul loved David very much and asked that he remain in his service so that he could play the lyre whenever needed. So that's pretty much where we left off last week. So this week we're going to continue right into chapter seven. Uh, sorry, 17. So if you want to turn there now, you can, to follow along. And we're going to try to get through the, the whole chapter today. And it's not really clear... How long exactly? How much time lapsed between chapter 16 and chapter 17? Uh, but most scholars do agree that they are in chronological sequence. So these events happened after the events in in 16, and we know it can't be more than you know a few years because David is referred throughout still as a very young man. So he, it's not like he had grown old in the temp- uh, in the, uh, the palace at, at this point. So let's just read the introduction first to this chapter, starting in. Verse 1. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Soko and Judah and Azekah at Ephes Damim. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. All right. So whether it was a couple weeks or months or even a couple years, we're taken to this next next major plot point in the story, and that's a point of conflict with Israel's arch enemy at the time, the Philistines. And throughout their history, as you read through their history, Israel goes through kind of a variety of different arch enemies, um, and their their main opposers or aggressors or oppressors they change over time and. If you remember, when we looked back in the book of Judges, we we talked about Gideon. And at that point, the bad guys for Gideon were the Midianites. And by the time we get to David, the primary threat at hand is the Philistines. And if you've read through the book of Judges, you might recall that in the story of Samson, one of the, the judges in the book of Judges, the Philistines were featured as kind of the main antagonist in his story. So at that time, when we get to David, they had been beginning to conquer and control territories near Israel. And over time, they've they've been encroaching further and further. And now they're threatening to take over Bethlehem. And at the time, Gibeah was the capital. So they're kind of encroaching towards the heart of Israel. So it's kind of a desperate situation that's being painted here. And the significance of those locations that are listed there is, is painting that, that picture. So if this were kind of like a, a medieval story with castles and kings, it would be like this threat that had been looming for maybe years, but now it was maybe on the horizon, and now it's getting closer and closer, and the enemy is at, at the gate of the castle with a battering ram, and the, the king and his soldiers are inside getting really nervous and preparing for battle. Of course, here we don't have castles and moats. It's it's hills and ravines, so the setting is more of a like a 300 type of battle setting, more so than you know Lord of the Rings. But you, you get the idea. And in fact, they're actually on two opposite hills facing each other, which is a pretty epic image. And like going off of movies, I, I still. I can't help but picture, you know, the aerial, epic aerial shots that you get in movies like like Braveheart or Narnia, where you have these two armies getting ready to face each other. I like movies. And it makes sense that so many movies do have these scenes with two armies facing off or camping, and, and you know, there's this, this tension that builds so, so naturally when you have these two enemies, two armies gathered to face each other. Tension and suspense so let's keep reading picking up in verse 4 the Philistines are going to kind of play into that tension then Goliath a Philistine champion from Gath came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel he was over nine feet tall he wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds he also wore bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor-bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. Goliath stood and uh, shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. "'Why are you all coming out to fight?' he called. "'I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves.' But if I kill him you will be our slaves I defy the armies of Israel today send me a man who will fight me when Saul and the Israelites heard this they were terrified and deeply shaken so we knew the Philistines were a threat regardless but now we're introduced to this champion Goliath and he's huge and it's it's hard to even imagine someone over nine feet tall And in a lot of translations, you'll see the Hebrew measurement is six cubits and a span, which is, it roughly comes out to nine and a half to nine and three quarters feet. So to help to visualize this, I started Googling, and I found that the the tallest person in modern medical records was eight foot eleven, which is still a pretty crazy height, but almost you know, six inches to a foot shorter than than Goliath. It was the cl- closest I could find. So here's a, a, a photo of a scale model of Robert Wadlow, and he's standing next to a guy, I don't know his name, uh, but he looks like he's about six foot or even a little taller than six foot. That's really tall. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost comical. Like, it, it, it doesn't even look like it could be real, but this is, this is a real guy. Um, that top line there, that top orange line, would then be around 10 feet. So Goliath would have even stood taller than Robert, somewhere between that nine and a half and 10 foot mark. And to put this even further in perspective, uh, scholars generally agree that, you know, based on archaeological records, the average ancient Jewish man at this time would have stood around five to five and a half feet. So they were, the average guy was pretty short. Um, for our, for our standards. So that guy that is standing next to Robert, he would have been considered a, a really tall guy. <laughs> six foot was really tall. In fact, Saul was probably around six foot because he was described as standing a head taller than everyone else. So Saul would have been like, felt he would have felt tall. You know, he would be used to feeling tall. And then you see this guy Goliath and he doesn't feel tall anymore. <laughs> so it's really not surprising at all that that Saul and the Israelites were terrified and, and deeply shaken by Goliath's challenge. Well, and besides that, too, Goliath wouldn't have been wearing you know <laughs> that nice professional tailored suit. He, it went, the text goes out of its way to describe his terrifying armor and his huge weapons that he had. So it would have been very intimidating. So that sets up this scene in which David is about to arrive, picking up in verse 12. We get kind of reintroduced to David. So let's read how this unfolds. Now, David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at the time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shemaiah, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For forty days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champions strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, Take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers, and give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they're doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts, as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. And then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. You will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. David asked the soldiers standing nearby, What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway? He is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. And these men gave David the same reply. They said, Yes, that is the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. We walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. And then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. So this standoff has lasted 40 days, and three of David's brothers at this point have joined Saul's army. So far, though, there really hasn't been any real fighting on, on either side, from, from what it sounds like. So Jesse sends David uh, with some bread for his brothers, for, with some cheese for his, their captain, and he wants to get an update kind of, uh, of what's going on, which is understandable after 40 days it's really dragging out. So... David did exactly what his dad told him to do. And he gets there just in time to see this this standoff play out. So Israel's kind of rallying to the battlefield, uh, but then just running away as soon as they they see Goliath. He comes out to taunt them. So as David's seeing this, he also gets filled in on this fact that King Saul has offered a huge reward for anyone who kills Goliath. His daughter in marriage plus lifetime exemption from taxes—that's a pretty for his whole family. It's a pretty big uh, bonus. So what's what's David's response to all this? In, in contrast to everyone else's response, which was fear, I would kind of describe his response as indignation—kind of a mixture of, of anger and disgust who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? He's basically saying, why are you letting this guy get away with what he's saying and doing? Why hasn't anyone killed him and gotten the reward? And I think this is kind of funny. In true big brother fashion, I think Eliab just gets really ticked that David's going around asking questions. He just seems really annoyed that David's even there at all. He accuses him of pride and deceit. I don't know why he kind of amuses me. It's kind of a classic sibling banter. David's response, what have I done now? I'm just trying to ask a question. Uh, and he just kind of ignores Eliab and just keeps going on, doing what he's doing, asking questions. And he keeps getting the same report from everyone he asks. So then eventually Saul catches wind of David's question. He hears uh, that he's going around asking this. And again, his question is basically, why are you letting him get away with this? So Saul sends for David, and let's see what happens next in verse 32. David approaches Saul, and he says, "'Don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him.' "'Don't be ridiculous,' Saul replied. "'There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. "'You're only a boy, and he's, he's been a man of war since his youth.' But David persisted. "'I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats,' he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I will do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. And he picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. So he's all alone, he's headed across the valley from one hill to the other to meet this giant. He has no armor and just a staff and a sling as weapons. But he has total faith in Yahweh to defeat this enemy. And that song that we sang at the end was so fitting. Nothing can stop an unstoppable God. It's clear that David believed that in this moment. And notice even in his conversation with Saul, when he brings up his past experiences with the lion and the bear, he's not boasting in how strong he is or how brave he is. He totally gives all the credit to the Lord for uh, his victories and success in uh, in defending his father's flock. And remember that in chapter 16, when we read about uh, Samuel anointing David, after he was anointed, it says that the Spirit of God was with him greatly from that time on. And I think this is just a great demonstration of that of David being led in the Spirit, representing God's will and God's presence among the people, even before he became king. So we're getting to the climax of the fight, so let's keep going. Reading from verse 41 now, and we see Goliath's response to being approached By David Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy am I a dog he roared at David that you come at me with a stick and he cursed David by the names of his gods come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals Goliath yelled and David replied to the Philistine You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today Yahweh will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that Yahweh rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is Yahweh's battle and he will give you to us. Wow. <laughs> I don't I, I I don't know about you guys. I honestly just get chills every time I read that passage. It's just such an incredible display of faith from this kid who's probably 5 feet in change facing this giant almost twice his height. Would certainly seem that way. Giant warrior who's decked out in high-tech armor oversized overpowered weapons and he Has nothing but a staff and a sling, but he knows that there's a much stronger bigger more powerful Warrior on his side and he's ready to prove it for the whole world to see and That's just such an awesome and pure motivation at the forefront of his mind is not the reward He doesn't go to Goliath and say, I'm going to kill you and get Saul's daughter as my wife and tax exemption for life. That's not his motivation. The, The forefront of his mind is proving that Yahweh defends his people. So here we come to the moment of truth. Verse 48. Let's go. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head." So uh, Goliath was clearly totally incapacitated by just the stone. It's not really clear. There's some debate as to whether he was actually dead uh, before or after David then takes Goliath's sword and cuts off his head. Uh, but the credit to the victory, either way, is, is given to the stone and the sling. And I, I don't know how many of you have ever played the game video game Mortal Kombat. And I never thought I'd be referencing it in a sermon before, but I grew up playing it every now and then with cousins who had a Nintendo 64 console. I didn't have one, but they did. So every now and then we'd get together and we'd play Mortal Kombat. And there would come a moment in Mortal Kombat fights where either you or your opponent's health would drop so low that... The the character just couldn't fight back anymore, and they would just kind of stand there and and sway back and forth and there The message would come on the screen that was just really memorable for me And it would say to the player that was still alive, finish him, and it would look like that (laughs) So at that point the the other player who's still alive could use whatever move he wanted to just finish him off It didn't really matter. The fight was over So, I I just can't help but hear finish him between verses 49 and 50 there. It's like the fight's over, he won, and now he gets to just kind of get to do whatever he wants to finish him off. So, anyway, this, this fallen champion is just really bad news for the Philistines. So, they retreat, and we see that in verse 51. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the des- deserted Philistine camp. David took the Philistine's head to Jerusalem, but he stored the man's armor in his own tent. So it was a total victory. And as Saul watched David go out to fight the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? I really don't know, Abner declared. Well, find out who he is, the king told him. As soon as David returned from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Tell me about your father, young man, Saul said. And David replied, His name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. Now, those last few verses might sound a little confusing, timeline-wise, because back in chapter 16, we read that one of Saul's servants had already told him about David, that he was the son of Jesse, and it seems like Saul should have known David long enough by now to kind of know who he was and got to know him. But remember, first of all, that when David first came to Saul, It was while he was being tormented and depressed, he really wasn't in his right frame of of mind. So it's really not all that surprising that he would forget the name of of his dad. Uh, But it seems to me also, and this is a little bit of extrapolation, but it seems to me that Saul's fondness for David that was mentioned previously had to have been based really on superficial values and kind of a selfish motivation. Because Saul used David, obviously, to meet his own needs, And because he was young and handsome, he could fit into kind of the royal aesthetic without making Saul seem like he was keeping lowly company. So I think while David's presence may have fueled Saul's pride a little bit, um, Saul clearly took no real interest in David's life, his background, his family, where he came from. And I think it's a good reminder for us to not make that same mistake of superficiality in our relationships with other people. And it's not that with every new acquaintance you have to really dive deep into soul-bearing, vulnerable topics within the first ten minutes of of meeting someone. Uh, But we should take genuine interest in people and be willing to go there when the time is appropriate to have those deep conversations. Every human is... An image-bearer of God has value. And if you set aside your own interest, or focus your interest outwardly, that inherently is a setting aside of your own pride and self-interest. So it's just kind of an aside. The other thing that must have been on Saul's mind, why he suddenly was so interested in this kid David is that reward that that he promised, right? So now he's thinking, oh, great, this little twerp is going to want to marry my daughter now, and his whole family is going to get off with no taxes. So he wants to know, okay, how big is this family? How big of a cut am I, uh, how big of a hit am I taking? Uh, And which daughter am I going to give him? Um, So at this moment, I think there's a seed of, of jealousy, of resentment, and defensiveness that we see play out later on in Saul's heart towards David. So that'll play out eventually, but for now, um, that's, we've gotten through the, the whole chapter at this point, so I want to leave us really contemplating this topic of pride. This story is just such a vivid illustration of that first uh, theme from uh, Hannah's poem, that first theological principle that God opposes the proud, but exalts the humble. So in this chapter, we see mainly the the humiliation and and the downfall of a a larger-than-life embodiment of pride and self-absorption and arrogance and and just self-assuredness. And this event will end up being a turning point for Saul again, as we'll see later on, but this focus in 17 is mainly on the fall of Goliath, where in contrast, the victor in this situation, David, is an embodiment of humility. We haven't really gotten to his full exaltation. We'll see how he is exalted in his humility, but we can see how even God's just using this humble shepherd boy, David, to take down the proud and arrogant Goliath. And everything that David did and said was to the honor and to the glory of the living God of Israel. And every victory, even those over the, the wild animals in defense of his father's flock, was an opportunity not to boast in himself, but in the power of God. And I do want to make a distinction because humility sometimes gets too closely associated with timidity or inaction. And that's just so clearly not the case here. David's humility and selflessness is a replacement of pride in himself with confidence in God. So David is far from timid. He is bold. He is courageous. He takes decisive action while everyone else around him is just running around like scared fools, shaking in their boots, and of course, Goliath too was was bold and fearless, right? So those characteristics are not in themselves inherently good. The difference is that Goliath was confident in himself whereas David was confident in God. So it's just a real-life example, very epic example that's hyperlinked to the principles of wisdom that we see taught all throughout Scripture, especially in, in Psalms and Proverbs. So Proverbs 16:18 is uh, a classic one. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or Proverbs 3:34, which echoes the wisdom in Hannah's poem. It says, With those who scorn, he is scornful, but those who are humble, he gives favor. In fact, James quotes that, um, I forget the exact reference, but he quotes it in the Greek version. actually says, God opposes the proud and gives favor to the humble. And this is just, it's a prominent theme that we see throughout Psalms, Proverbs, and really the whole Old Testament, if you pay attention and are looking for it, going back, of course, all the way to Adam and Eve's pride in the Garden. So, being such a fundamental aspect of the Old Testament, it shouldn't, be completely unsurprising that when Jesus came preaching about the true meaning of the Torah and the nature of God's upside-down kingdom like we talked about and he made statements like in Matthew 23 12 whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted and blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 5:3, and the first will be last the last will be first first and I can can go on and on And meanwhile, he opposed the the uh, self-righteous, self-seeking, attention-drawing religious leaders of his day. His brother James, he got it when he wrote, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's in James 4.10. The apostle Paul, he got it. In Philippians 2.3, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant. Than yourself and again I could I could go on and on with a dozen similar quotes you could do a a search for Bible verses about pride and you get a huge list so the story of of David and Goliath it's it's really fun it's really satisfying but let's also allow it to be a reminder of this fundamental principle of God's kingdom so we, we all need to examine ourselves periodically for areas in our lives where we might be prideful, whether it's in our own abilities, or achievements, or even relationships. Some, sometimes pride can be obvious and overt, and sometimes it's more subtle and nuanced. And uh, Usually, you're the only one who can determine whether or not you're being prideful about any, anything in your life. Instead, we should be. There's one way in which we should be prideful, and it's in the way that a proud child might boast about how strong or smart or funny their parent is. Not in themselves, but because of their parent. That's kind of the way that Paul boasts openly and lavishly throughout his letters about. God, his Heavenly Father or on the the flip side boasting in his weakness like in 2nd Corinthians 12 9 I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me so it'd be kind of like David saying look at how small and weak I am that shows how big and powerful God is and even our salvation in Christ through faith it's designed facilitate this mindset and we see that in Ephesians 2 uh, 8 through 10 God saved you by his grace when you believe and you can't take credit for this it's a gift from God salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it we are God's masterpiece he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago So none of us can can boast about our relationship with God, or about how much we donate, how many cans we bring for the construction project, or anything good that we do. Because without God, we are totally powerless over sin and death, and we are not saved from those things because of anything we've done. We're saved so that God can do good through us. So let's approach each day with humility selflessness but also with confidence and fearlessness with pride not in who we are or what we can do but in our in who our father in heaven is and who he's declared us to be in him and in our role as ambassadors for him and like David to without shame or hesitation to stand up for God's reputation and proclaim the truth of the good news Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also the Gentile.